0: to a good story we generally don't like to know the ending. We don't want the story to be ruined for us. We don't want any spoilers. But knowing the end can change how we listen to the story. If we know certain characters take center stage we might pay more attention to them early on. There might be some sad moments but if we know how the story ends we can endure through the sadness for the joy to follow. We think knowing the end the story, but in reality, it gives hope and clarity. When it comes to the story of redemption, we get a glimpse of the end of that story. It doesn't always make our present experience easier, but it does give us hope when we understand that all sad things will become untrue. When we know that our world is broken, but that God is moving to restore and redeem to know the end of the story and spoiler alert god wins
1: good morning again if we haven't met my name is mike i'm a lead pastor uh, i know we're finally at that series that everyone has been waiting for revelation so um what i'm gonna ask you to do is hopefully many of you if you were interested got one of these scripture journals when you walked in there should be a, pla- a pen somewhere nearby you right now please grab that pen grab this book Open it up and put your name in there. That means that if you ever lose it, by leaving it here, we'll give it back to you and you don't need to grab a new one, okay? So everyone, make sure you write your name in the front of this journal and then I will seek you, I will just, if you leave it here, I will read all your notes and then I will return it to you, okay? So don't leave your Bibles here. All right, um, so you guys are throwing me off sitting in the front. So Andrew, can you come up here? This is what you get. I'm picking on Braden later, so that's why I went to you and I didn't want to upset Josiah. All right, can you put these glasses on for me? Yeah. I've got some sweet new glasses. Isn't that weird? Okay, how many fingers am I holding up? <laughs> so, yeah, you couldn't see it. So right now, what Andrew can see is your belly, right? I can. Okay, so these glasses have this weird angle in them, but well, you can take them off and give them to me now. Thank you for demonstrating. You didn't get motion sickness, did you? Okay, great. It threw me off when I first watched them. All right, so why do I do a s- silly, stupid illustration like that? Um, That is to demonstrate that that all of us have glasses. We all view and interpret what takes place around us through a specific filter and a lens. Like you've you've probably seen this if you've ever been sharing a story with someone uh, who lived through the events with you and they remember it completely differently than you do. So what we have to admit and acknowledge is when we approach Scripture, we all wear specific glasses. And our job is to work as hard as we can to take those glasses off So we can better understand the original author's intent as well as God's intent through those human authors. And this is especially true when we come to a text like Revelation. One that has had all sorts of debate and misunderstanding throughout all of human history. Now, ever since uh, Christ ascended, every generation that has come along since then has become convinced that Jesus would return in their lifetime. One of the books in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians, was written because the church at Thessalonica thought Jesus had returned and they missed it. So since that point, every generation has been, been convinced Jesus was coming back now. And all of them have something in common, that is they've all been wrong. Now, I, I, uh, now I've, I've lived through a few different iterations of this. The one, the, uh, uh, anytime I hear now someone predicting or, or just being absolutely certain that they have figured out the day Jesus is coming back, I get a little upset because it now means that God is not going to return on that day. Because it says no one knows the day or the hour. So as soon as someone predicts it, now, I mean, if you just keep predicting he'll come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow, eventually you'll be right. But if you, if you pick, pick a specific day, like I, I even had a, a there's a, a member at the, at the previous church I was at in Colorado that was convinced that Jesus was going to come back in October of 2023. So sorry, we all missed it. Um, and, and as he was telling me about it, it was like this astrological phenomenon that he had discerned and figured out. And I told him that was heresy and he didn't like that. So not gonna, I'm not going to do any prediction here. But as I was uh, studying and preparing for this, G.K. Chesterton has a, a great way with words. And he summarized the approach that many people take to Revelation really well. He said, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. That is, someone who was reading the text and trying to interpret and translate it for us today, they're just as crazy as some of the descriptions of of the creatures that we see as we read this. Now, we're going to read just the first eight verses. I'm not even going to, like, walk through them, but I just want us to get a picture or a glimpse or a brief understanding of of some of the the purpose of why this book was written. So if you grab your journal Bibles and stand with me, we're going to read Revelation 1, just the first eight verses, just to give us a picture, a glimpse of what it is we're going to be studying together this year. Revelation one, starting in verse one, hear the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, sorry, his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John To the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who was, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. As you're seated, I invite you to pray with me once again. God, we are grateful for your word and the, the promise that is revealed to them. I pray that we as your people would submit ourselves to Your Word as the highest source of authority, as, as our focus of hope, that we would help our eyes, our gaze, our hearts be so encaptured by You and the ways that You revealed Yourself to us that, that all the things of this world just fall away. And I pray for this series, that, that we as, as Your people here would be remember, remind, remind each other and be reminded through Your Word that we can put, put our hope, our trust, and our confidence in You. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we're just going to do a brief overview of how to study Revelation, of what the book is talking about, some, some specific interpretive issues and, and grid that we need to use to faithfully interpret this text. So I've got three questions for us today. The first is, what is Revelation? Now, as you saw, as we just read together, it is a letter. In verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches in Asia. So it's a letter written to seven churches. Now, there's debate or, or discussion about who John is. Now, there's some argue that this is just a pseudonym, that, that someone who wrote this letter was just attributing it to some person named John. Others argue it was some well-known first-century pastor, but most who would agree with our statement of faith believe it was the Apostle John, same one who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the Gospel of John, and he's described in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he was well-known to these churches, which means he also carried a, a sense of authority for them. And part of the reason that, that they think that it was this uh, uh, disciple, John, is much of the language is, is not written, so uh, New Testament was written mostly in Greek, there's a few phrases of Aramaic, but it, the, the Greek like structure in the text is not very good. It's actually more heavily based on or borrowed from the Hebrew. So like the syntax makes more sense if you read it from a Hebrew perspective than it does reading it from a Greek perspective. But the other reason that we believe it was the Apostle John who wrote it is because of a guy named Irenaeus, who wrote in 180 AD. Irenaeus was a disciple of a guy named Polycarp, who was martyred in 156 AD. Polycarp was actually a friend of John. So we are two generations removed from John the apostle who wrote this book, who then writes that John was the one who wrote this book, so that not too much time had passed between those two people. So a disciple of a disciple. And in my mind, since we have that writing, we would need pretty conclusive evidence to cast the idea that John wrote it into doubt. And, and the debate primarily comes from people who don't believe that the Bible is true. So we're just going to run with it, and, and believe it or not, this is the only one of the, of the four five books, letters that he wrote, that actually specifies that it was written by John. So if any of them that we should believe, it should be this one. But what is the significance of these seven churches? So if you look at a map... Patmos, if you can't see it, is right, the island right there. If you would follow like the, the normal way a mail route would go and the way the roads traveled in the first century, if someone wrote a letter from Patmos, it would be taken to Ephesus. From there, it would be going up to Smyrna, then to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally ending up in Laodicea. So, it's it's John just following the normal route that a mail carrier would take as they were traveling about the ancient Roman roads. It's similar to the way like Paul's letters would have been distributed. They would have been brought to a church. The church would have read it in their congregation, copied it down, and then sent it on to the next church so that each one of them could have their own copy of, of Paul's letters. Now, some of what makes Revelation difficult for us to interpret is because Revelation is a combination, a mix of three different genres apocalyptic literature, prophetic literature, and an epistle. So, epistle is the one that most of us are familiar with. That would be John's letters. Uh, Paul wrote 13 of them. Peter wrote uh, two of them. John himself wrote three other letters reminding Christians to persevere under persecution. The one that is the most difficult is apocalyptic. Now, the word apocalyptic, if you look in your Bible, the first verse in this says, the revelation… That's the apocalyptic. That's where the name comes from. It is a revelation, a revealing of who God is. Now, one thing to note about apocalyptic literature, this is from Grant Osborne, a theologian talking about this. He says that apocalyptic literature entails the revelatory communication of heavenly secrets by an otherworldly being to a seer who presents the visions in a narrative framework. The visions guide the readers into a transcendent reality It takes precedence over the current situation and encourages readers to persevere in the midst of their trials. The visions reverse normal experience by making the heavenly mysteries the real world and depicting the present crisis as a temporary, temporary, illusory situation. This is achieved via God's transforming the world for His faithful. So, a few things I want to point out from this: first, is it is a revelatory communication. That is, it is meant to be uh, revealing, not hidden, not some special code that you're supposed to try to to discern or figure out. It's not trying to hide what it is. The other thing I want us to see is this is transcendent realities. Um, That's just a a way of saying it's it's like otherworldly. It's not from or of this world. It's describing what is taking place really spiritually. And then it's using those as the framework for the the grid by which we then interpret everything that is taking place in the earth. So see, it reverses normal experience by talking about what's taking place in the spiritual world. And the last thing that I want us to point out from this is it is achieved via God's transforming. So it gets to God's ultimate end for everything that is taking place in the world. So that is the first two. We've got apocalyptic, we've got epistle. The middle one is prophetic. And surprisingly enough, uh, Grant Osborne, the one whose quote I just read from, says, it is impossible to distinguish ultimately between prophecy and apocalyptic. For the latter, the apocalyptic is an extension of prophecy. So it's also important for us that this prophetic piece, the word prophecy appears in Revelation seven times. That's significant. Numbers are very significant as we're going through Revelation. First one is one that we read together this morning, Revelation 1, three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, first note that the prophecy isn't just focused on the future. John says you're supposed to do something with this prophecy. He says, hear the words and keep. That's something that we have a tendency to miss because we get so focused on these these big pictures and stories and, and words that we don't read anywhere else. We forget that there's something for us to do with this text. Now, this idea is actually picked up at the end of the book as well. So, kind of book-ending the summary of what we're going to be studying together. Revelation 20, verse 7. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. Three verses later, he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. So John is repeating here. This prophecy isn't meant to be hidden away or only understood by a select few who have deciphered the code. It is a reminder we're supposed to share these truths with any and everyone that we come into contact with. So, one of the… Um, a book written by, by some of my professors at seminary, uh, Interpreting the Bible Faithfully, which Micah's using for his uh, class at 9 a.m. right now. He's going to… I'm actually going to reference your class again coming up. Um, in the book, what they say is, the prophecies predict literal events, though the descriptions do not portray the events Literally. That's some of where we get. What we need to understand is, is John is, is describing something that really took place, but it's, it's up to us to work to figure out what John was actually seeing. And another piece that makes John difficult for us to study is that it is steeped, like think of tea, just steeped in Old Testament imagery and references. But because many of us have not steeped our minds in the Old Testament, they go right over our heads. So one of the books I was uh, reading this week is uh, called Reversed Thunder by Eugene Peterson, just some re- reflections that he shares on uh, his, his reading through Revelation. The very beginning of that book, he says there are 404 verses in Revelation, and there are 518 references to earlier Scripture. Think about that. 404 verses and 518 references to earlier Scripture. He goes on to say, John even has his favorite books of Scripture, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Isaiah, and Exodus. Those are quoted all over in the book of, of, of Revelation. So because John is so steeped, has so soaked his mind in the Bible, when, when he is, something is revealed to him he, and he struggles to come up with words to describe it, what comes out is the Bible. I think that's a great picture for us on how our minds should be so saturated with God's Word that it just naturally flows out of us. Now, what's, what's difficult is he doesn't do word-for-word references. Like, he didn't have it memorized verbatim like we see in, in most of the rest of our Bibles. What, what instead we need to do is use what uh, Dr. Kevin Van Hooser at, at Trinity has said, is we need to use our sanctified imagination. So we need to know enough of what, what the Old Testament is saying to be able to see what John is talking about and go back to what the Old Testament talks about and, and see what John is seeing. So this isn't like, when I say imagination, I'm not saying we make stuff up, I'm not saying we claim some new revelation from God, we'll get to that at the end of Revelation. This is having our minds literally so filled with God's word that it changes the way we think. Or to use the glasses <clears throat> illustration again, it's getting better and better prescriptions until we're finally able to see God's word correctly. Now the last thing I want us to, to, to think about uh, what Revelation is, is the culmination of all of history. My seminary professor summarized it really well. He said, "This is God's plans for cosmic history." Now, Revelation isn't ultimately written to provide a timeline of the end times. It is instead written to inspire perseverance and faithfulness. You missed it, Tom. Said he was. If I ever say faithfulness or simplicity, he was going to stand up and start cheering, and he missed it. Um, so, written to inspire perseverance and faithfulness, Tom, you missed it again. That even in the end times, God is still sovereignly ruling and reigning on His throne. It's giving us a glimpse of what happens at the end. So then we get to this question of why study Revelation? First answer is because it's in the Bible. (laughs) So we don't have an option to not study it. And as I've I've been talking to people in our body about studying it, there's been nervousness, there's been fear. I even had someone at one point tell me, don't you ever preach on Revelation. So do we believe it's God's Word or not? Because we don't get to just pick and choose what parts of the Bible we want to believe God does. It's our job to dig into it. It's our job to learn what it says, to get training in the correct ways to interpret it and then apply it to our lives. We'll get get to that in a little bit as well. Um, Another person writing on this says, one of the great tragedies in the church in our day is how revelation has been so narrowly and incorrectly interpreted with an obsessive focus on the future end time with the result that we have missed the fact that it contains many profound truths and encouragements concerning Christian life and discipleship. Now, this gets back to the idea of, of uh, connected to the prophecy. Prophecy is not always future-oriented. So when it talks about prophecy in this book, so it, it's actually, John is telling us, there's something that we need to do with it. It's giving us an orientation, a direction, a focus to all of our lives that we are then supposed to obey. Now, one of the other things Revelation does is it, it actually stirs our hearts and our minds, our imaginations in ways that, that pure prose cannot. Now, Eugene Peterson, again, I, I, uh, I, just, I, I like the way he, he just has a way with, with words. Like he's, he's just very poetic in the way he approaches writings, and, and, and it, it always moves me. Um, so in his book on this, he says, I do not read Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I've read it all before in law and prophet, in gospel and epistle. Everything in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. He goes on to say, Revelation is a gift, a work of intense imagination that pulls its reader into a world of sky battles between angels and beasts, lurid punishments and glorious salvations, kaleidoscopic vision and cosmic song. He goes on to describe John, the author of this book, as a poet and a pastor. And he says, when, when, when we get to a book like Revelation, we as adults have a tendency to overanalyze and miss it, whereas kids understand it implicitly. They know exactly what is going on in this story. So what John is trying to do is he's trying to have all, us, as, as the readers, have our hearts stirred by the glories of the gospel to help us keep our eyes and our gaze fixed heavenward which is another reason that we should study Revelation is because of how Christocentric it is. That is just completely focused and fixed on Jesus Christ. The first chapter that we just read contains some descriptions of the resurrected Savior that can barely be contained in words. Like just a quick summary of all the things that describes Jesus as the Son of Man, Alpha and Omega, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, Jesus is described as having white hair, fiery eyes, feet fine like bronze, a voice like cascading waters. When you hear cascading waters, think more hurricane, not rippling brook. It says Jesus holds seven stars in his hand that a sword is coming out of his mouth. Like in in the first century, stars were were viewed as deities, but for for Jesus, they're mere playthings, which gets us back to the very beginning in Genesis 1. One of my favorite descriptions in Genesis 1 in the creation account is the stars are a mere encore. Like it talks about creating the sun and the moon and three words, and the stars. As if they don't even matter. Yet the stars that we look at contain thousands and millions of galaxies. It's just a beautiful picture of the way these, these are nothing in the hands of our almighty God. Another reason we should study this book, we, we just looked at this. Anyone here like to be blessed? So how are you Blessed read aloud the words of this prophecy, hear the words of this prophecy, and keep what is written in it. So if we don't spend time studying, reading, working to apply and live out the truths of what this letter tells to us, we are missing out on a blessing. And another reason that we need to study this is is we need to have corrective to a lot of the misunderstandings that are seen in this book. Like nowhere in the book of Revelation do you see the idea of the rapture. Other passages talk about that, that word is used one time to refer to the child that is born in Revelation chapter 12, which is then caught up to heaven. Another thing that you may not know is not in Revelation is the word Antichrist. It appears nowhere in the text of Revelation, which is also just just fascinating to me. This is something that that in my study and preparation just blew my mind. Um, Satan is not omniscient, since only God knows the timing of the end. The devil must have an Antichrist ready in every era, lest that turn out to be the time God has appointed for the consummation of all things. Isn't that fascinating? Now that's First John talks about Antichrist, and it, it's in the plural, that Antichrist has come, and Antichrists are coming, which would make sense that since Satan is not omniscient, he is always trying to work behind the scenes, getting ready for that final battle that is at some point going to take place. So the other the other piece I just uh, want to point out, I have friends. Well, I did it uh, when I was growing up. I read the books Left Behind. Not an accurate account of what's going to happen don't read Left Behind as a commentary to Scripture. It is artistic rendering, it is someone's interpretation of what they think is going to take place, but it is not a a very accurate description of what Revelation actually describes. And the last thing that I I just want to point out on why we study this is the reality that there are only two destinies for people, one of pure bliss and happiness, the other filled with unimaginable horror. And, And I would just plead with you in the midst of of, of this entire study, do not make light of hell. Hell is not a joke. Hell is not something to laugh about, as as if you might see on on TV shows or in jokes or those kinds of things. Don't ever make light of hell, because it is eternal separation. It is complete punishment. It is complete torture, alienation from everything that God has created us to do and be. Now, with all that in mind, we get to the question, how then do I study Revelation? And the way we have to do it is very carefully <laughs> and with humility. Now, there, there are a lot of things that I will claim ignorance on. The one thing that I, will, I can claim to have some true expertise in is biblical studies. I so far have two degrees. I've applied for a third in biblical studies. And in this series in particular, I'm spending way more time and energy in preparation than most of my other sermon preparation studies. Now, one of the things that, that is very helpful, so I, I slightly made light of this at the beginning with the G.K. Chesterton quote about uh, uh, St. John not understanding much of his commentators. Commentaries are a wonderful, wonderfully helpful tool. If you didn't know, commentaries are, are just notes, books that someone comments on the, the texts of Scripture. So for this, usually, like when I'm when I'm doing sermon prep, I, I read anywhere from three to five different commentaries to try to have an understanding of what the text itself is saying. For this uh, sermon study, I'm, I'm going to be doing something like ten to twelve different commentaries each week, just to make sure I'm getting the text right. So just to show you a brief picture, this is one of two slides. So I've uh, I've read excerpts from every single one of them, and I know uh, these two look the same, but they're different authors. So they updated updated the book in the past. Uh, well, yeah, the one on the right came out this past year. Um, So this is one page that I'm going to be using, and some of the reason I'm doing this is just if you want to go look at the things I'm studying, at where I'm getting these ideas, and where this interpretation is coming from, it's not me. Um, I remember when I was growing up, my dad is a pastor, and one of the things that he told me from an early age is if I ever say anything new, question it, because it's probably heresy. So there is something that, that needs to keep us grounded in our interpretations. It's not just make, I like, I don't just sit, make, sit in my study all week and, like, make stuff up. I'm digging into what the text of Scripture says. I, I had a professor at seminary that said what your, what your job is, is to do is to wrestle with this text, like grapple with it, try to figure out how the text is reading you. Like, I'm submitting myself to the God of these Scriptures and then studying to the best of my ability what He is revealing to us through His Word. So the, the rest of the books that I'm, I'm using are these. Um Some are better than others. If if, uh, I quote from someone, it will most likely be be someone on this list, though. Um, This one, and part of the reason that I'm actually doing this is uh, this one is my New Testament professor at seminary that really opened up my eyes to um, how Revelation is helpful for us as believers today. He said he's lost track of how many times he's taught Sunday school classes and sermon series and overviews at colleges, churches, seminaries through the book of Revelation because no one else wanted to do it. So he would jump in and just work his way through it. Um, yeah, the other, the other thing is, the reason that I'm reading all these things is, is the Bible isn't easy to understand correctly. I think many of us have a tendency to miss that. Like, it's, it's really easy to read, but moving to the point of reading it correctly is very, very difficult. Now, as we're working through this text, just one note at the beginning, I will probably say some things that contradict what you have learned before. I'm okay with that but please don't approach this as a heresy hunt. Where there's legitimate debate, I will tell you, but I'm going to share my views on this with what makes sense of the entire Bible as we read it. Like, we can't just rip verses or pages out of context and then suit it to fit our own agenda. Remember, we all have glasses. We're all bringing our own agendas or ideas to the text. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't get better at understanding, but it takes time and work. Now, some of what we need to be aware of as well is if you were in my class last semester, you saw this diagram. Um, uh, this is, is just referring to the way that we uh, interpret, uh, faithfully interpret Scripture. And so you can see they're all interconnected and related to each other. So on the far left, you have exegesis. On the far right, you have what's called pastoral theology. They also, in other places, translated as practical theology. But then in between, you start building these things out. So you start with exegesis, move to biblical theology, then historical theology, then systematic theology, and then finally you get to pastoral theology, And then the the bottom picture is just if you like circles, that's another way of summarizing the exact same thing that the top image says. So what do these, like why am I bringing this up? Why does this matter? Because we have to have an understanding of all components of that in order to faithfully interpret the text. And for Revelation in particular, the most important is the biblical and the historical theology. So just really briefly summarize this. So exegesis, what does the text actually say? Just careful reading of the text. Read it over, read it carefully, make some of the connections. What does the text actually say? From there, you can start to build out a biblical theology. That is, how has God revealed His Word historically and organically? So putting all of the biblical themes together. After that, you do historical theology. That is, how have people in the past understood the Bible? Now, th- we, we, we as, as Protestants believe differently than Roman Catholics do specifically on the historical theology piece. So Roman Catholics actually will, will have a hierarchy, they have a magisterium that it, it helps determine faithful interpretation of the text. In their minds, uh, what is, oh, I'm missing the word, tradition, that's the word. Tradition is the lens or the grid by which you interpret all of Scripture. Now, as Protestants, we don't just dismiss tradition, but tradition serves under The text of scripture itself so we we want historical theology to provide guardrails for us to help us understand that we're like we stand on the shoulders of giants multiple people throughout centuries have millennia at this point have worked through and studied this text as well so how have people in the past understood the bible after that we can do systematic theology which is trying to answer the question what is true about god and his universe and then once you've done all of that work you finally get to pastoral theology how should humans respond to god's revelation now, one of, the, one of the, the, the notes about exegesis is in order to do exegesis correctly, uh, I got this from uh, the NIV Study Bible, if you want to go read more about it. There's an article about walking through this whole thing. But in order to do exegesis properly, what it says is we must apply sound principles of interpretation to the Bible. Sound principles of interpretation. Micah pointed this out to me this week, and he's teaching it on his class once again. So, if you want to know, like, have a good uh, a tool or training in order to how, to how to correctly and faithfully understand Scripture, go to Micah's class. But they give us some qualifications for an interpreter of Scripture, which I think many people either neglect, miss, or, or marginalize. Here's the things that we need one, a reasoned faith in the God who reveals, two, a willingness to obey its message, three, willingness to employ appropriate methods, four, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and fifth, membership in the church. Now, as Mike and I were talking about it, that last one stood out to me as one that, that we have a tendency to miss or neglect, that we, God has called us into a community, like a, a, a body of believers. And part of the reason that we have a body of believers is to help provide guardrails so that we don't go jumping off into heresy. So being a member of of a local church is vitally important if you want to be a qualified interpreter, a reader, a studier of Scripture. Now, the other piece, same book, uh, the other piece that that is, is very important when we come to Revelation, that is the text cannot mean something that would have been completely incomprehensible to its original audience. So some what we need to do is we need to, need to actually go back to and, and do whatever we can to put on the, the glasses of a first century reader, the first century audience, the, the group, the churches that John was writing to. They had a, a motive, a purpose, a reasoning behind it. So then uh, Blomberg, my, my professor from seminary, went on to say, the most fundamental hermeneutical principle to follow. So hermeneutics is just remember careful reading, reading and study of the text. Fundamental hermeneutical principle to follow. In interpreting revelation is to look for meanings that could have been intelligible to first-century christians in asia minor not hidden meanings decipherable only by people centuries later who think they might be living in the days immediately prior to christ's return in addition to that one of the pieces we need to keep in mind is the genre of scripture we're reading remember i talked about there's three genres in here when we get to the apocalyptic part that's the one that has the most debate or discussion or misunderstanding or difficulty to try to figure out so when we look at apocalyptic literature What are we talking about? So again, Blomberg, I think, really helpfully summarizes this, where he says, frequent features in apocalyptic literature include, one, the extensive use of symbolism, often with outlandish or grotesque creatures and cosmology, much like our modern political cartoons. Two, the depiction of past, present, and or future events of world history, leading up to a decisive intervention on the part of God to right the injustices of society and to reward God's faithful people. And three, the assurance to those people in a setting of crisis or perceived crisis that evil would not ultimately maintain the upper hand. So then we get to this question, how much is symbolic in Revelation? Notice symbolism is a frequent feature of Revelation. I think actually a lot more of Revelation is symbolic than than we would realize. And some of this, as I was, again, I read multiple translations trying to figure out what what the original text said. Um, If you look back at the KJV, there's some slightly different, KJV is one of the oldest English translations we have. CSB is what we're using and reading in front of us right now. There's a really interesting Greek word um, that here is translated as signified in 1600s. In our text, uh, he made it known is the way it's translated here. But the word that, that the Greek word that is used there is actually symbols or signs or signifying of some sort. So, what, uh, and this is G.K. Beale in his commentary on this, helpfully says the programmatic statement about the book's precise mode of communication in 1 1 is that the warp and woof, that is the general tenor of it, is symbolic. So, that the pre- preceding dictum should be reversed to say interpret symbolically unless you are forced to interpret literally. Better put, the reader is to expect that the main means of divine revelation in this book is symbolic. Now, we will see that explicitly as we walk through it, because there is symbolism all over the place. And then as, as we're seeking to faithfully interpret it, we have to ask the question, what do the signs stand for? What are they symbolizing? How are we supposed to understand what God's messenger is talking about? Again, Blomberg, he's my professor from seminary, that's why I'm borrowing from him so heavily because he was really influential, just my thinking and approaching to interpreting this text. So in order to understand the signs, the background includes the Old Testament, it's a big one, intertestamental literature, that is uh, books that were written between the closing of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and current or recent events in the cities of Asia Minor of John's days. Numbers, though, are almost always symbolic, especially sevens and their multiples, standing for completeness or universality based on the seven days of creation, and twelves and their multiples, standing for the twelve tribes of Israel and or the twelve apostles, to designate God's people as a whole. Again, we'll see all these things as we work through it. I'm just trying to give you a big, broader picture on how is it that we are supposed to approach and understand correctly this text. So then, when we, when we pull in historical theology to this, how has the church throughout history interpreted that book? Again, basically every generation has believed they are living in the end times, which they are because the end times started as soon as Jesus ascended. But generally, just broad terms, there are four interpretive options or ways of summarizing and understanding the events that are taking place in Revelation. And, and, and all these have like subsets and subgenres as well, so just, I'll try to keep it as broad as possible. Futurism, preterism, historicism, idealism, and then eclectic is a combination of them all. So futurism is everything that is written in the book of Revelation is the future, at least from uh, chapter 6 and on. Preterism argues that everything that is described in Revelation was ultimately fulfilled in AD 70. So that would be a more uh, liberal understanding of the text. They, didn't, they wouldn't believe that the text was written in, in like 94, 95, 96 AD. They would argue that it was written sometime in the 60s. Um, Historicism believes that, that what is described in here is progressively fulfilled throughout church history, and idealism is saying this is just describing the, the timeless struggle between God and Satan throughout the entire church age. And then eclectic is just a combination of them all, because there's, there's weird things that, that uh, are taking place with time in the book, so like, pretty much all scholars agree, once you get to Revelation 12, it's referring to the arrival of Jesus, like the birth narrative as, as seen from the heavenly perspective. So if Revelation 12 is referring to an event that took place previously, how much other stuff in Revelation is referring to events that took place previously? Which is where almost every commentary that I read argued for an eclectic approach. In fact, there's even one, this was just funny to me. He described it as eclectic, redemptive, historical, idealist view. As if he was just trying to encapsulate every interpretive option he possibly could and say, that's how I'm going to interpret the book of Revelation. So again, now, yeah, another piece to this, uh, and I read this in, in three views on the millennium and beyond. All sorts of debate around Revelation. How do we faithfully interpret it? One of it, one of them is the question of the millennium in Revelation 21. We'll get there in the fall. Um, but there, so there's book series you can get that walk through all the interpretive options. Again, if you want any of the resources, just come talk to me, and I would love to walk through these with you. But one of the things that stood out is uh, at the end of this, a summary article just explaining what we all have in common. One. All are committed to Scripture as the ultimate authority in this discussion. Two, even in the disagreement, there has been a sense of fellowship. Three, each view represented here foresees the eventual victory of Christ to the glory of God. So when we're engaging all these various interpretive issues, this is not a debate about inerrancy. This is not a debate about authority of the Bible. This is not a debate about God or theology proper. It's a debate about the proper way to interpret a primarily apocalyptic text that was written 2,000 years ago. We need to, as we're studying this book, keep theological triage in mind. That is the hierarchy of theological issues. Don't condemn someone because they differ with you. Where we all agree is Jesus is coming back, hopefully soon. I had a a deacon at the previous church I was at that had a, a phrase that I found out is a Danish proverb that he would often say to me. He said, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. Prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. It's been attributed to Yogi Berra and and numerous other people, um, but that is especially true when we come to a book book like Revelation. So when we approach this, it, it is especially difficult to predict, especially about the future. Now, I want to leave us with just an outline, an overview of what we're going to be spending the next year studying together. And uh, I found out last week after using Lord of the Rings as my primary illustration that that intern Braden hasn't ever read or watched Lord of the Rings. I literally dropped my coffee cup because I was so shocked. So my goal through the next uh, number of sermons is I'm just going to give him the storyline of the Lord of the Rings for illustrations every single week. So I pulled another one for today. Um, This is getting to the, the outline of what we see in the book of Revelation. So Braden, pay attention. So what Gladriel is talking about there, just, if you haven't seen it, just please do me a favor and go watch it. Uh, Bob and Kristen have a copy I know you could borrow. You guys love it. Um, what Gladriel just talks about there is summarized by John when he's commanded to write down these things in Revelation 119. So, therefore, write down what you have seen, the past, what is, right now, and what will take place after this. So John himself tells us the way that we should interpret Revelation is seeing the past, what is right now, and what will take place at some point in the future. So, my helpful you know, the question or debate is, when does that take place? Like, at what section or point in the book is this future-oriented starting to take place? And again, I got this from, from uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg from my seminary. The way he just summarized or, or gave the picture, the big outline of Revelation is what's past is chapter 1, what's present is chapters 2 through 5, and then chapter 6 and following is future. Um, and that will provide the primary interpretive grid for the way we will approach it as well as we dig into the text and, and what it means. Again, minus with like chapter 12. This is just a really rough, broad overview. Um, yesterday, I was, I was uh, listening to a podcast and a sermon that stood out to me on uh, the exact reason that we study Revelation, which I think is summarized really helpfully by a story in the Old Testament. Remember, I'm pulling biblical theology in now because the Old Testament matters. We can't just separate these two these two books. Uh, after 430 years in slavery... Israelite nation is finally freed. Um, Moses leads the entire nation to the brink of the promised land, like they're about to enter in. And he sends out 12, scouts to go, to go, uh, 12 spies to go scout out the land and see, see what it looks like, see what it's going to be, all the, the insight scoop into it. So they get into the promised land, and ten are scared out of their minds because there's giants there. But then there's two that are absolutely determined to go and take it. See, the ten are too busy looking at the giants to think about their God who is the giant slayer. Now, Revelation 70 times commands John to see or look or, or some word getting to like look in this direction. And what we need to do today is, is our job is to keep our eyes on God. Because if we do that, the enemies that we face here will start to shrink in comparison, which is the exact point of Revelation, Revelation, singular. If you say Revelations, I will correct. So, this is the opposite of the Psalms. It's a book of Psalms. A singular revelation. There's not multiple revealings God has done. There's one revelation. So, dear friends, let's think of this. In a world where I'm guessing most of you are tired of feeling like the church is losing, where it it feels like Christianity is waning, like there's no hope in the church whatsoever, what we need to do is stop looking at the wrong things and cast our eyes in the right direction, which is what revelation is going to help us do. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the reality that we know the end goal of history. (laughs) God, I thank you that that this isn't hidden, but you have revealed yourself to us. And we long for the day where you will finally come back and fix all the brokenness that we see taking place around us on a regular basis. God, we pray that you would would help constrain us to your word. Help us to be a changed people and, and regularly be reminded to to turn our gaze off of ourselves, off of the temporary things in this world and fix our eyes and our gaze on you, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you endured the cross and then scorned the shame, you now sit at the right hand of the God where you will someday come back and return to judge all the worlds. God, I long for that day. Help continue making us holy sanctify us according to your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.